If you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you turn to Psalm 119? It is a new year here at Abilene. If you're anything like me, I love a new year. New starts, new opportunities, new beginnings, a, a new year and a new you. Uh, most of you are all are probably wearing you, something new you got uh, for Christmas, whether it's a new shirt, new shoes, uh, new jewelry. Everybody loves uh, new. And uh, a new year is when a lot of folks will make those New Year's resolutions. We, we make those decisions that we're going to spend more time with our family, we're going to get healthy, we're going to lose weight, right? We're going to read more, we're going to walk more, we're going to work out more. It's just what we do here at the beginning of a brand new year, uh, which is why something that I saw at the bottom of the screen on Fox News caught my attention about a week ago. Uh, Equinox Gym, it's a luxury fitness club, temporarily suspended new memberships on January the 1st, 2023. In other words, if you wanted to go join Equinox Gym on New Year's Day, you could not do it. They would not let you. And there was an ad, ad campaign that was entitled, We Don't Speak January. And here's what they said. It's not you. It's January. Listen to this. January is a fantasy delivered to your door in a pastel-colored box. They continued, it talks about change. It needs a new outfit before it can begin. Shortcutting, giving up just about just a few weeks later. You are not a New Year's resolution. Your life doesn't start at the beginning of the year. And that's not what being part of Equinox is about. We go beyond what's possible. We defy expectations. We are not moderation. We want it all every day, all day. And you deserve it all. Hey, sign me up right now, right? And so I saw that, and I, I thought about it. So maybe you're sitting here this morning, and, and it got me curious. So why? why? Why would they do that? Why was it just a clever marketing campaign? Or is there something else behind it? Are people really joining? I mean, in mass, are people all across America joining gyms and fitness clubs in January and never, ever even showing up? And so I did what I do. I did some research. And here's what I discovered. Up to 67% of gym memberships are never, ever used. And even among those who do use their gym memberships, many would not be considered regulars. 56.6% go twice a week. 20.7% go once a week. 6% go once a month. And 7.4% go less than once a month. As a matter of fact, did you know that there are many gyms and fitness centers uh, across America who base their business model on the bet, bet that most folks won't show up? We've all seen it. Every single January, you go to the gym and you go that first week to the gym and I mean, it is slam packed. I mean, you can't get on the rower. You can't get on the, on the incline. You can't get nowhere. And then two weeks later, it's like the rapture hit. <laughs> I mean, nobody to be found. And so... I've done that at least twice in my life. I was thinking about this yesterday. I remember that the Life Club in Simpsonville, South Carolina, I signed up very first part of the year, went a couple of weeks, got sick, never went back, had to pay the rest of the year until I had finished out my, my contract. That's a bunch of money, right? I'll tell you how much it is. The average gym membership costs $60 a month. That means that every year Americans blow $397 million on gym memberships they never even use. Here's the catch. Gyms like it that way. 
As a matter of fact, a lot of gyms will recruit people that they know don't even like working out on the assumption, base betting on the, on the fact that they're not going to show up. Why? Because it allows the gym to have way more members than their facility can reasonably handle at one time. For example, the average Planet Fitness has 6,500 members, but its gyms can only accommodate roughly 300 people at a time. That helps the bottom line. It also helps those members who actually do show up and workout because the money that's paid by all the members who never show up helps to keep the cost down for everybody else. And you say, Pastor, that sure is interesting, but what in the world does that have to do with church this morning or this morning's sermon? Well, probably more than you'd think because just like there are many who will start out the new year with a desire and a goal of working out, losing weight, getting physically healthy. There are many, and I'd imagine lots of you here this morning, who will start the new year with the goal of getting spiritually healthy, reading your Bible every day, spending time with God in prayer every single day, being more faithful in your church attendance, sharing your faith with others, being more generous and, and faithful in your, in your giving. But just like those who sign up for a gym membership and never or rarely go, there are tons of Christians who will get started with these spiritual disciplines. They're going to make it a week or so. They're going to quit, drop out, just like those folks at the gym. Here's the problem. These spiritual disciplines, Bible study, prayer, worship, evangelism, giving, etc., they are the bench presses, they are the crunches, they are the squats, they are the curls of the Christian life. And you are never, ever, ever going to mature and grow in your Christian life the way that you should unless you consistently and intentionally exercise those spiritual muscles. Thomas Constable put it this way. He said that growth is not automatic. It is conditioned upon our responses. Only by the exercise of spiritual disciplines such as prayer, obedience, faith, study of the scriptures, and proper responses to trials does our intim intimacy with Christ increase. Only by continuing in doing good does that spiritual life imparted at regeneration grow to maturity and earn a reward. That's why every single January at, at Abilene, we give our attention to starting and strengthening those areas of our Christian life and growth. Why do we do this? Well, because your Christian growth isn't determined by what you have available to you because Peter said that Jesus has given us all things. Say all things. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. No, like those folks at the gym, your Christian growth is determined by what you do with what you have been given. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be learning what the Bible teaches about these spiritual disciplines, these spiritual workouts, these holy habits, if you will, to help us grow and mature and to become the Christians that, that Jesus wants us to become. Bible study, prayer, worship, witnessing, and giving. And so we're going to start this morning with Bible study, how to get into your Bible and how to get your Bible into you. 
And so I was thinking yesterday. So yesterday was my sweet wife Kim's her her birthday. You say, how old is she? None of your business. I like living. Uh, and uh, so yesterday was her birthday, and uh, and it got me to thinking. I saw the picture of me kissing her there on Facebook that I shared and everything. We have been married for 26 years. We dated for six years before we got married, and so we have known each other. I mean, for 32 years. And I was thinking the other day about the first time that I ever saw Kimberly Kate Robinson. Uh, I was in the library at Milan High School because as a senior, you had one of two choices. You could go to study hall where you actually had to do work, or you could go to the library and watch the TV. And I liked the latter. And so I signed up to be a library helper. And uh, Kim was, of course, valedictorian, summa cum laude, National Merit Honor Scholarship, all that kind of thing. And so she was part of a pilot program for distance learning. It was one of the very first classes in the nation where they had one teacher with five or six classes all connected by video. And I never will forget the first day that she walked into the library. She came in with one of my friends, and I met Kimberly Robinson. And it was either that day or it could have even been the next day that I wrote her my very first note. Did y'all see this yesterday? How many of y'all saw this online? How many of y'all knew what it was? How many of y'all had no idea what it was? Only those who know how to text. And so, but I never will forget writing her that very first, that very first note. It was a romantic masterpiece. <laughs> it was. And here's what it said. Kim, hi. Brad. You laugh, but it worked, hey? All right? I mean, just a romantic masterpiece. And it was that, it was at that point that I started writing her. I wrote one every class. I wrote her a love letter every single class, handed it to her in between the breaks. She has them somewhere in that closet of hers. Uh, and, uh, but, but I wrote her, and I would, I would write those letters every single class. And that's why I made a 36 in Spanish one week, uh, one six weeks. And, uh, and I would write her a love letter, how much I loved her, how much I was thinking about her. Couldn't wait to see her, where I want to take her out on her date on, on Friday night. Every single class, I would write that love letter, and I would hand it to her in between uh, the classes because I wanted her to know how much and then she would write me love letters. And so this is back years ago, guys, before you had long distance. Long distance was really expensive if you could use it. And uh, we didn't have cell phones and everything was, you, I mean, you just, anyway. so you would write letters. And so before she would go off on vacation or go off to camp or something like that, she would write me this letter. And I would take that letter and I would read that letter and I'd read it again and I'd read it again. And I would study every single word. I would look at every single sentence and, and, and phrase. And I would kind of imagine her writing it because it was a love letter. Do you remember, those of you who are married, do you remember what it was like to be newlyweds? Raise your hand. Some of y'all are still newlyweds and you didn't raise your hand, but do you remember <laughs> what it's like? How awesome it was just to be able to spend time together. It was awesome. You couldn't wait to get off work. You couldn't wait to get out of class just to spend time together. Do you remember what it was like to be newly saved? When you first came to Jesus and the ultimate awesome experience of just spending time 
in the Bible, when you would open up this book and you thought, wow, God is talking to me. God is speaking to me. And you're understanding some of the wonderful things that he is saying to you and, and he's promising to you. You hung on every word. You poured over every thought. You believed every single promise. Absolutely awesome. Now, you didn't under, always understand everything that you read, but you were just blown away that God was speaking to you. Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth. He said this, 2 Corinthians 11, he said, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now, most of you all, when you came to church this morning, you brought something with you. You brought a Bible. Will you hold it up if you brought a Bible with you this morning? Can I see your Bible? You say, Pastor, I didn't bring my Bible. I brought my phone. It's all right. Now, I will tell you this right here, that studies show that you retain more what you read off of a printed page than what you read off of a digital screen, just so you'll know. Uh, but, but how many, read, raise your hand one more time. You brought your Bible. Can I see your Bibles? Raise them up there. Well, that's a lot of Bibles. You know why you brought it? You know why you brought that Bible with you this morning? Because you love it. And you've grown to love it. It's the Word of God. It's His love letter to you. It's not a history book. You, you didn't take your history book around with you and pull it out in between classes and kind of pour over it. In your break time, on your break, the break time. You, you didn't do that. You didn't take your history book and, and look at the phrases and, and memorize, unless you had a, a test, you didn't memorize your history book. You, you didn't do that at all. This book is much more than that. It is not just a moral guide. It is not just a book of poetry. It is not just a collection of cute stories or ancient literature. It is a love letter to you. And as you've grown closer to the author whom you have come to know and love, God himself, the book becomes even more special, more precious, more meaningful to you. Billy Graham called the Bible God's love letter to you. Now, you should be there in Psalm 119. If you have not made it there now, I have stalled as long as I possibly can. Psalm 119 is an amazing psalm. It beautifully expresses awe and adoration for God and His Word. It was written to celebrate God's Word and to teach the people of God. It's the longest chapter in your Bible. It's 176 verses. There are 22 stanzas. He's starting with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Hey, by the way, I always want you to learn something when you come to church. Did you know that the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet are Aleph and Bet? Then the first two letters of the uh, Greek alphabet are Alpha, Beta. You put them together and you have Alpha, Bet. You learned something this morning, didn't you? 
There's an early church tradition that says King David used this psalm to teach his son Solomon not just the Hebrew alphabet, but the alphabet of the spiritual life. That's why I would encourage you, as we're going to see this morning, that you use this psalm as a tuning fork to tune your heart to the Word of God. The theme of Psalm 119 is, I love the Bible. It's a psalm that David wrote to express his love for the Word of God, for the law of God, for the precepts of God, for the commandments of God. And he talks about it in several different ways. Matter of fact, he uses eight different words or descriptions to describe the Word of God. And whereas some people just tolerate the Bible and they see it as not much more than an old, antiquated, outdated book with some helpful precepts that you can either take or leave and cute stories that you can either believe or not, David loved it and he saw the Bible as the Word of God because God spoke to him in it. And he opens up this psalm with these words in verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. David loved the word of God because David loved the God of the word. He continues in verse 3. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into all of your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Here at the beginning of a brand new year, as some of you all have resolved, you've made a commitment to read through the Bible this year, or you have resolved to spend time every single day studying the Word of God, let me give you some encouragement and advice straight from this psalm on how to get into your Bible, how to get the Bible into you. Let me share with you how we can move forward together in Bible study in 2023. Because whenever you open up your Bible to read, you need to do four things and you need to ask four questions. Just jot these down. The first thing is observation, real practical. Observation, and you need to ask, what do I see? Because the psalmist says here in Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. What was the psalmist praying? He's praying for the power of observation. He was asking God to give him the ability to tear the bandages off of his eyes so that he could begin to see with sight and insight the truth that God had revealed. That's what really makes. So have you ever listened to one Bible teacher over another or talked to one Bible student over another and one seems to know the Bible better? Have you ever seen that? Well, that's what makes one Bible student better than the other. It's the power of observation. It's kind of like Sherlock Holmes used to say. He loved pointing out, you see, but you do not observe. You see, but you do not observe. 
Now, observation's a process. It's fascinating, but it's a process. Louis Agassiz was a Harvard naturalist, famous scientist. 1800s, I think. And they asked him one day, they said, what is your greatest contribution to science? And here's what he said. I have taught men and women to observe. And here's how he did it. He would take a freshman class and he would walk into that freshman class and he'd have a stinky dead fish on a dissecting tray. He would put that stinking dead fish underneath the nose of that young freshman and he would tell that freshman, hey, observe the specimen and write down everything that you see. And that little freshman would just get so excited and he'd start writing down. He'd look and he'd look and he'd write down, he'd write down and, and he'd just keep writing down. And about halfway through the class, the professor would just disappear and leave. He'd come back the next day and he'd ask that young freshman, he'd say, hey, what did you learn? What did you observe? And the freshman would say, I wrote down 37 things. I observed 37 things. He'd say, that's great. Go back and observe some more. Freshman would go back and observe and he'd leave. And he did that day after day after day for two weeks. The only thing that freshman did in class was to observe a dead fish on a dissection tray. His genius, the professor's genius, was his understanding and awareness that the foundation for scientific investigation is observation. And the same thing goes for Bible study. You start with a verse. That is the basic unit for all good Bible study. And then once you have a verse, you look in and you look out. You look in. And you, you look and say, well, what, what words make up the verse? What do they mean? Who's mentioned in the verse? Who are they? Where are they from? What did they do? What's the main verb? Of the verse. Is it talking about something that happened in the past, is happening now, or is going to happen in the future? Did it just happen once and that's it? Or is it something that happened in the past and kept on happening or happened with ongoing effects? You pay attention to cause and effects and if then kind of a statements, and you're looking into that verse and you're observing everything that you can see inside that verse. And then once you do that, then you turn your attention outwards and you look out. When did it happen? Where did it happen? What was going on in the world when it happened? What does the, where does the verse fall in the book? Where does the book fall in the Bible? And what you're doing is you're taking that verse and you're turning it and turning it like a diamond in the light, and you're looking and gleaning all of those facets. That's where you start. Howard Hendricks said that he did this for years and years and years and years with Acts 1-8. And after years and years of observation, he had observed over 600 different things in Acts 1-8. That's where you start. But then after observation comes investigation. And I really could have called it interpretation. But what you do is you ask the question, what can I learn? The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Over the Christmas break, we, uh, we went to the mountains. And evidently, my kids have been binge watching this show. Oh, I think it's on the History Channel called Expedition Unknown. 
Anybody in here ever watched Expedition Unknown? Can I see your hands? Anybody familiar with it at all? Can I, raise your hands higher. Can I see your hands? Not, not many of you. Wow. I've watched every single one of them at this point. So you got Josh Gates. Josh Gates is a he is an adventurer, he's an explorer, he's a trained archaeologist who loves to travel to the ends of the world, uh, investigating the, the great his, legends of history. And uh, in one of those episodes, I think it was the one, maybe the one on Moses or some, it was on one of I had like one of those aha dad moments. Oh, yeah. We're watching this, this episode and they're at a dig site in Jordan, in Edom. Got my, got my attention? Edom. They're at a dig site in Edom, in Georgia, in Jordan, for King Solomon's copper mine. And I jumped up and I went, I've been there. I've done that. It is true. My very first trip to Jordan, we went to a dig site in Jordan, in, in Edom. And uh, it's it so cool. You're going to have to follow me, guys. And so I'm down there on my knees in this dig site. And I've got my little brushes. And I've got my little blades. And I'm digging through the dirt. Every boy's dream. Right? And I'm digging, and I'm digging, and I'm digging, and I'm digging. And you're finding pot sherds. And we didn't find any bones. That would have been cool. But you're down there, and you're digging. That's what you do when you read your Bible. You're digging. You're searching for treasure. Because determined investigation yields great discoveries. Now, what's the difference between observation and investigation? Well, it's the difference between collecting facts and gaining knowledge. Because as I'm down there on my knees and, and I'm in the dirt and a storm coming up and the windstorm, we're having to leave. But you're down there. I'm not down there just to find pieces of pottery, collect some facts, bones and stuff. You're doing all of that to gain knowledge. Who was here? Who were they? When were they here? What were they doing? You got this big mound of slag where they had all this mining that had gone on. That's what you do when you're studying the Bible. And as you dig and as you discover the treasure of God's Word, you learn about God. You learn about man. You learn about sin. You learn about salvation. You learn about heaven. You learn about the end of time. Because observation, what do I see? Leads to investigation, what can I learn? And then that leads to meditation. What is God saying to me? The psalmist said, Psalm 119, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. He says again in verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. Now, that's hard for us today, right? Most of us are too busy to give the time that it takes to really and truly meditate on God's Word. John, we used to sing the song, it take time to be holy. We don't sing it anymore because nobody has the time. 
because it takes time to be holy. You, you can't be holy in a hurry. And yet we live such hectic, hurried, harried lives that we barely have enough time to react, much less reflect. The same goes for meditation. There's no such thing as instant meditation. Meditation is always something that takes a lot of time. And one of the things that you'll notice as you read and study your Bible is that biblical meditation is something that takes a lot of time and it takes day and night. Joshua wrote in Joshua 1 verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. The psalmist says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. That's biblical meditation. You don't just read a verse, check it off, think about it for a second, check it off, done my meditation. That's not biblical meditation. Meditation is a mindset. It is a way of life where the Word of God is constantly in your mind. That's what makes biblical, y'all need to pay attention, that's what makes biblical meditation different than the way the world views meditation because the world views meditation like the Eastern philosophies view meditation. Empty your mind. Think about nothing. You can't think about nothing. I mean, you try to do that, you're going to think about your football team. Some of y'all are doing that right now, and you need to stop it. <laughs> no. Biblical meditation is not emptying your mind and thinking about nothing. Biblical meditation means that you fill your mind with the truth that God has revealed in His Word. Amen. I was able to share this out at West. It's a little different out there because we're in West Columbia County. And um, you guys here at, at Martinez campus, you, uh, you're, you're a little bit more city-fied than my family and our neighbors out in in Harlem and Appling. And so you may not understand and you might not appreciate this illustration, but I'm going, to give it a, I'm going to give it a whirl. When I was 14, 15 years old, I couldn't gain weight. I have since remedied that problem. <laughs> and so my dad sent me from the country of Milan, Tennessee to the country of East Tennessee to live with some of my relatives up there who had a, uh, a dairy farm. And I got to work on a dairy farm all summer. Now, the great part was I got to drive trucks and tractors and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, but I got to work with cows. And I learned some things about cows that maybe you didn't know. Did you know that cows have four stomachs? It's called the ruminant digestive process. And what I learned was, you know, unlike the way my kids eat. So my kids like take two chews, the food's gone. A cow, as he's out there in that pasture, will eat some grass. Now, by the way, I apologize that it is right next to lunchtime for what I'm about to tell you. It worked better in the earlier services, so just pardon me. 
That cow is going to eat on some grass or some silage or whatever. By the way, silage stinks. Did you know that? Now, my, my uncle said it smelled like money to him. He said something else smelled like money. That's a whole other sermon. That's the end of the process. Whole other th- pro- so. That cow is out there in that pasture. He's going to chew some grass. He's going to chew it a little bit. He's going to swallow it. A little while later, he's going to burp it up. He's going to chew on it some more, get some more good out of it. He's going to swallow it again. Going to ferment a little more. Going to chew it, swap, uh, bolt it back up. He's going to do that all day long. Now, don't you want to go eat a salad down here at the restaurant in a minute? He's going to do that all day long. He's going to chew and bring it up, swallow it and chew and bring it up. So that's what we're to do when we are meditating on the Scripture. That's the way that we are to feed on the Word of God. George Mueller put it this way. He said, as the outward man is not fit for work for any length of time unless he eats, so is with the inner man. What is the food for the inner man? Not prayer, but the Word of God. Not simply reading of the Word of God so that it only passes through our minds just as water runs through a pipe. No, we must consider what we read, ponder over it, and apply it to our hearts. You read the Bible. You digest it. You bring it back to your mind. You think about it and chew on it some more. You digest it again. You pull it all day long. You're just pulling it up and thinking about it and digesting it. Pulling it back. That's what you do. Observation. Investigation. Meditation. Lastly, quickly. Application. What must I do? He said in verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. D.L. Moody said, The Bible will keep you from sin or the sin will keep you from your Bible. Howard Hendricks said, Dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. Hello. Dusty Bibles always lead to dirty lives. In fact, you are either in the Word and the Word is conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, or you are in the world and the world is squeezing you into its mold. Al Mohler always put it this way. He said, I've shared with you before, in every single passage there is something to learn and something to do. God didn't just give us the Bible to satisfy your curiosity. God gave us the Bible to transform our lives. He didn't give us the Bible so you can win Bible trivia. He gave us the Bible to make us more like Jesus Christ. That is the goal of Bible Bible study. Not to do something with or to the Bible, but so that the Bible might do something with and to us. Here's the mistake that far too many Christians make, and we're done. When they're reading and studying the Bible, they substitute interpretation for application. They substitute superficial obedience for substantive life change. They substitute rationalization for repentance. They substitute an emotional experience for a volitional decision. And they substitute communication for transformation. Look here. The Bible isn't just truth. It is truth that transforms. 
The Bible is divine in its origin. It is living in its nature. It is powerful in its operation. It is final in its judgment. It is clear in its commands. We are to believe it. We are to search it. We are to receive it. We are to proclaim it. And if you're going to move forward in your Bible study in 2023, let me encourage you to study it cleanly. Study it continuously. Study it consistently. Study it carefully. Study it creatively. And study it conversionally. That means with the goal of being transformed into the image and likeness of Jesus. And if you will get into your Bible and get your Bible into you... It won't just change your life. It will absolutely change your eternity. Because it's God's love letter to you. It's God's love letter to you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you know what God's love letter says to you? God is saying to you, I love you. Come to me. And that's all you have to do. Come to me. I love you. I sent my son for you. He gave his life on the cross for you. He rose from the dead on the third day for you. Come to me. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you know what God's love letter says to you? I love you. Live for me. Live for me.